Thank you, Tom, for that extraordinary reading, and uh, I think we better pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, and we pray that we will indeed uh, hear your voice speaking to us, and that we may meet you, and in that meeting, we may be changed. Amen. Well, the only reason I can uh, consider preaching on Judges 19 is that you preached on Judges 18 the week before. I wonder how you felt as you heard that story unfold. Perhaps just take a moment now to reflect on what went through your mind, and equally importantly, how you felt. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share this with anyone, but just take a moment or two and think, what on earth did you make of that? I hope that you were shocked and sickened And even offended as you ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? The first thing we need to appreciate about Judges 19 is it brings us face to face with the power of story. It was an extraordinary piece of storytelling, the power of story. It it was the great Christian writer and and apologist, C.S. Lewis, and I know he likes to quote C.S. Lewis as well, so I'm safe here. And and C.S. Lewis says this, If you are talking about something beautiful or something horrible, don't just tell people it's beautiful or it's horrible. No, describe it to them in such a way that they feel and they say, that's beautiful or that's horrible. And that's what our storyteller in Judges 19 has done. It's an important difference between being told something is horrible and saying, that is horrible. This is the power of story. And this is what happens through the story of Judges 19. Uh, This wonderful storyteller doesn't just tell us, oh, sin is terrible, and that left to ourselves, lurking within every human heart, is the potential for unimaginable and shocking evil. No, he shows us. He shocks us. And he demands that we respond. This is the power of story, when it is told well. And, and God knows this. After all, he, he gives, gives us our Bible mostly in the form of stories of God's people. The world around us knows it. Uh, the multi-billion dollar movie industry, for example, is a place of powerful storytelling. You know, it's um, no surprise that Peter Jackson could produce three epic movies from The Lord of the Rings. It's a great example of powerful storytelling, especially as Tolkien works from a profound Christian framework. You know, they were great movies. Uh, Their only problem was they were much too short. It's perhaps a little more surprising that that, uh, Peter Jackson can again produce three movies out of the much shorter Hobbit. But hey, it works for me. Many of the popular books and TV shows in our culture, well, they're big stories. If you know uh, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones... Now, a hugely successful series on HBO. So far, he's written five really, really thick books of storytelling. Charlton Church very kindly gave me a Kindle when we left uh, a few years ago now, and uh, I bought the Game of Thrones for my Kindle. Uh, And uh, thank you for that. But when you're reading Game of Thrones, that little line at the bottom doesn't seem to move at all. They're such big stories. It's big storytelling. Secular minds appreciate the power of story and storytelling. Uh, I read these words from uh, Simon Barnes, who is a columnist for the Times in London. He's not a Christian, but I find this speaks to issues that Christians would want to address. He writes, 
We humans understand what happens in the world by making a story out of it. Narrative is the way we think, the way we see the world. A story that has no meaning is no story at all. It's just a recording of the chaos of life. We make narratives, stories, to make sense of the chaos, to make the chaos bearable. To make sense of the chaos, to make the chaos bearable. God understands the power of story. The media appreciate the power of the story. The secular mind appreciates the power of the story. And it's strange that sometimes we Christians fail to appreciate the power of story. It has been said that in the 21st century, people go to the movies or the theater to to be moved or challenged and to church to be entertained. How can this be when we have the greatest story ever told revealed in Scripture? As I said, most of our Bible consists of stories from the Old Testament, including, of course, Judges 19, right through to the Gospel and Acts. And the question is often, how can these stories have authority in our lives? They're not saying, do this, don't do that, this is right. That's not how story works. Uh, But I found this illustration helpful about how they can exercise their rightful authority in our lives. For example, if you were organizing a cycling club, you know, going out cycling, you could put up rules and regulations. Rules like, always wear a helmet, wear high visibility clothes, always have lights on your cycle at night. Or you could put up on the notice board the tragic story of a member of the club who was riding at night without lights or a helmet, who was hit by a car and injured. Do you see how the story could exercise authority in the life of the cyclists who read it, perhaps more powerfully than a list of rules and regulations? I think the first thing we have to appreciate as we hear Judges 19 is we come face to face with the power of story. The second thing we do is we come face to face with the full horror of sin. A key to understanding the significance of this story is, of course, the word in verse 1. Words I know you've heard many times as you've journeyed through through Judges. Judges 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And again, further on in the book, uh, and the story that we've heard in chapter 8 actually doesn't finish there. It kind of staggers on through further horrors and violence and bloodshed. Till again, in Judges 21, verse 25, we hear, in those days there was no king in Israel. This time it completes it, as you know, in those days, no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here in Judges 19, we get an extreme example of what life without proper leadership is like. This is where life ends up without genuine and rightful authority over human existence. As you know, going through Judges, Judges is set after the divinely appointed rule of Moses and Joshua, but before the appointment of kings of Israel. Everybody doing what we want. Ah, terrific! We can all do what we want. Sounds like freedom. Won't it be great? That lie, of course, is the fundamental lie that is the root of all human sin. The promise of freedom that turns into the worst kind of human sin. It's a lie as old as the Garden of Eden and as up-to-date as modern advertising. 
Judges 19 shows us how this lie turns out, how it works out to its fullest extent in people's lives. It's not pretty, is it? We see abuse and disrespect of other people, notably the innocent and the vulnerable. We see violence, sexual perversion, rape, murder, and finally the squalid dismemberment of the helpless victim's corpse. The humanity, uh, the inhumanity of the situation shows in so many ways. There is a despicable offer of the old man's own daughter to the evil mob outside his door. Ultimately, the Levite throwing his supposedly beloved partner to her terrible fate. One commentator describes it like this. The narrator does not dwell on the harrowing details, but if ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was the Levite's concubine on that night which must have seemed as interminable as eternity and as dark as the pit itself. Now, the Levite himself is just as inhuman as the murderous mob. He has utter disregard for this woman in the morning. Get up, let's be going. He says to her abused corpse. And our reading ends with him butchering her battered body. I don't know what you can imagine that you don't even want to try and imagine that scene, but he kind of can't help yourself, if you're like me. It's terrible. Can you imagine then you've got these 12 dismembered body parts being sent all around the country? It's a hot climate, no refrigeration. It's just utterly disgusting. Uh, I was working in a psychology lab some years ago, and a colleague of mine was looking at the psychology of taste and smell. And in one chemical, he was working with two chemicals that were so bad that if you put them on rats' favorite food, they wouldn't eat the food, they'd run away. I mean, so bad, even rats wouldn't eat it. The two chemicals were called cadaverine and putrescine. And they are the two chemicals that are the smell of rotting human flesh. I smelled it once, don't want to do it again. And this is where this story gets to, just the utter degradation and squalor. The story in Judges 19 gives us a window into hell. It gives us a picture of what unrestrained human sin is like when it reaches its destination. This is the full horror of sin. Humanity lost to God and one another. Humanity with no king, no worthwhile leader doing whatever, so everybody's doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Ungoverned and ungovernable. As Jesus puts it, like sheep without a shepherd. Humanity, with a false promise of freedom, losing our humanity and treating others with callous disregard. And this is why, Christians, we make such a big deal about sin. Not because we're neurotic or hung up about it, but we know that sin, that is humanity's fundamental rejection of the rule of God in our lives, is the fundamental rot in our society and our world. And Judges 19, it gives us this vision of where sin, unchecked by the rule of law or the rule of God, leads. And it is a terrible reflection, a window into the horror of hell. Now, most of the time, living in a place like Hong Kong, we take some form of the rule of law and responsible government for granted. There's all sorts of issues around that, so I'm going to not go there, as they say. 
yeah, yeah, but people, but people do things that are wrong. But the temptation living in a society like ours is that we see sin as just our minor personal shortcomings. We forget that what Christians know as sin is the terrible and fundamental curse that the entire planet faces. We live in a world where we are callous and uncaring to the weak and the helpless, where there is no king, no proper rule of God in humanity or people's lives. Then we see it laid bare. I was reading the other week of Angelina Jolie addressing the Security Council of the United Nations to denounce rape used as a weapon of war. This is the world we live in. Jolie, who has traveled extensively in her UN role, said she would never forget the survivors I've met or what they told me. She told members of the Security Council that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women, children, and men have been raped in conflicts in our lifetimes. This is the world we live in. Judges 19 is not far away. I, I used to kind of really be puzzled by the instructions in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we're instructed, first of all, first of all, a priority to pray uh, for kings, for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. In all godliness and holiness, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. You know, that prayer for social stability and spiritual freedom, well, it sounded to me a bit kind of weak. You know, quiet lives. Until I began to reflect on all the horror that happens when we don't get that. When that doesn't happen. When the God-given order and restraint on human sin is taken away. And it's terrible. And it's a window into hell. The first thing in Judges 19 is we come face to face with the power of story. The second thing we do is we come face to face with the full horror of sin. The third thing we come face to face with is the treachery of the human heart. It actually comes from within. Because in a sense, so far, you could be thinking, well, um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the fault is on the, the king. There's no king. It's not my fault. It's, it's my situation. You know, I'm not to blame. There's no king, so we do what we see as right in our own human eyes. We cannot blame the lack of a king for our sinful choices. Because ultimately, the king that humanity rejects is not just human rule or government, but God himself. His just and gentle reign is the only thing that can bring order to the unruly hearts and minds of human beings. Christians see beyond our need for good and just earthly government, which is a need, but we see beyond that that we need to restrain human sin and evil, violent outcomes from the heart. Christians see the need for each of our hearts to know the rule of Jesus, who is the true king of all. And Jesus himself directs us to look inside at our own hearts, not the hearts of the people in Judges 19 running after unrestrained evil, but our own. That's enough for us to deal with. Mark 7:21. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft and murder. And Jesus is echoing the words of Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, Christians believe that the only power capable of transforming human nature is the power of God in Jesus Christ. And that, only when applied at the very deepest level of our nature, 
Because the bleak story in Judges 19 shows us we see how deep is our need. Human nature doesn't need just a bit of help along the way or a bit of education or kind of tidying up and fixing a few bad habits. It needs total transformation. And this brings me to my fourth and final point. You'll see if you've been following the outline. Uh, Judges 19 forces us to come face to face with the triumph of grace. That's the good news. The triumph of grace in our lives is total transformation from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. That's the transformation the gospel brings. It's not enough just to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Don't settle for just saying you're a Christian. You've somehow got kind of past the line or whatever demarcation. Seek nothing less than your total transformation into the likeness of Christ by the power of God. That is the Christian goal and destiny. That is the Christian response to the sin that is the heart of humanity. I mean, it's interesting. Back in Judges 19, the Levite and the murderers in Gibeah are Christians, so to speak. You know, they are part of the people of Israel, the people of God. They belong to God's people. And in fact, the Levite chooses to go and stay the night in Gibeah rather than Jebus, Jerusalem. Because at that time, Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites. It was not part of God's people, part of Israel, as we heard in verse 11. When they were near Jebus, Jerusalem, the day was nearly over, and the servant, sent, the servant said to his master, Come now. Let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. They chose to go and spend the night with God's people, supposedly, rather than these terrible Jebusites. Who knows what they might have done to us? But there in the city... God's people are living evil, untransformed lives, just like everybody else. There's no king, so they do what's right in their own eyes. And we see the horrific consequences. God's people appreciate that nothing less than a profound work of grace at the very deepest level of our lives is what is needed. Some people might think I'm being pessimistic. I say I'm being realistic. Uh, Many years ago, I heard a sermon that profoundly influenced me. It does happen, rarely. It's by a man called Bert Osborne. And Bert gave his life to Africa in Christian ministry. He served the people of Rwanda, Burundi, and Uganda selflessly. He served right through the East Africa Revival, an amazing time where God worked and a high proportion of people in these countries came to faith in Jesus. The churches were and are full in those places. Many people can give their glowing testimonies to the faith in God. So imagine the horror when through the course of 100 days from April the 6th to July 16, 1994, approximately 800,000 to 1 million Tutsis and some moderate Hutus were massacred in the Rwandan genocide. These were people who had sat together, Hutu and Tutsi, in church like this members of the same churches where they had ethnic Hutu and ethnic uh, Tutsis massacred each other. 
During this period, more than six men, women, and children were murdered every minute of every hour of every day on average. This efficiency of killing was maintained for more than three months. Between a quarter and half a million women were raped during the hundred days of genocide. As a result of this rape, there were 20,000 children were born from these women. More than two-thirds of the women who were raped during the genocide were infected with HIV and AIDS. In many cases, this resulted from a systematic and planned use of rape by HIV-positive men as a weapon of genocide. Nobody can say that Judges 19 is not a realistic portrayal of human sin and what happens when order is taken away. The government of Rwanda and Burundi asked Bert Osborne to come back and talk with people to try to understand how this could have happened in one of the most Christian countries in the world, in every proper sense of that word. And I remember the sadness in Bert as he preached his sermon and reflected on his own Christian ministry in these places, so sacrificial. And he realized in his own words, he felt in their ministry, they had underestimated the power for evil that resides in the sinful heart. They administered too superficially, dealing with matters of the surface, prepared to have people say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, the Lord's doing great things for me, rather than recognizing the depth of the human heart, which is where grace needed to be doing its work. For grace to triumph, we need to be totally transformed, not just making a superficial profession of faith. I return to uh, my good friend C.S. Lewis again, who, who puts this admirably with this illustration. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. The book of Judges contains some of the most famous of the Bible stories. You know, Samson and so on. As well as some of the least known, like Judges 19. Some of them portray things that are beautiful, but perhaps more show what is repulsive in human nature. These powerful stories show us the deepest sin of humanity, but above all that shines the light of God's abundant grace. Ultimately, the book of Judges, and even chapter 19, is the story of the triumph of God's transforming grace in people's lives. It is also our story. Let me pray for us all. <clears throat> Father God, we cannot be uh, anything but disturbed by what we hear in Judges 19. And yet, we know that our world is a reflection of this. And even the darkest recesses of our own hearts reflect this. 
We pray, Father, for your transforming grace. That in our, our own lives and as we seek to serve our community and our world, so you would transform us from being part of the problem to part of the solution that we may reveal the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.